Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory or even the quality of an older person's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. For today's episode, I have invited a very special guest to talk to me about a very important topic, which is how coronavirus has affected nursing homes and other forms of residential long-term care, and where we can go from here to keep our older loved ones safer and healthier during these pandemic times. My guest is Dr. Carl Steinberg. He has been a nursing home and hospice medical director in the San Diego area since 1995, and he is currently the chief medical officer for Mariner Health Central, a 20-facility California nursing home management company. He is board certified in family medicine and in hospice and palliative medicine, and is also certified as a healthcare ethics consultant. Mm -hmm. He has been very involved in long-term care and palliative care policy for a long time, and he is currently president-elect of the American Medical Directors Association, which is also known as the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. In short, if there's anyone who can speak knowledgeably about coronavirus in nursing homes, it's Dr. Steinberg. So I'm delighted that he was able to make time to talk with me today to talk about what we've learned so far about coronavirus and long-term care, what's happening now in nursing homes, and what we might do to improve the situation given the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. Carl, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So to start with, maybe we can have you talk a little bit more about the work that you're doing right now in nursing homes. And when did this first come up on your radar? When did you first become concerned about coronavirus in long-term care facilities? And what's been happening in the facilities where you work? Yeah, gosh, Leslie, I mean, probably like many geriatricians, uh, when we started seeing the news that this virus had a really bad prognosis in people who were older and sicker, and the fact that it could be spread by people who were not active, you know, showing any symptoms, I was really concerned. So that was even before the Life Care Center of Kirkland case um, in Washington State started to come to light. And then once that happened, I, I said, oh gosh, this is, this is really going to be a, um, a bad thing for people in our care settings because they're sort of everyone's at close quarters and uh, you know you have people coming and going and uh, there's going to be no way once it gets going in some of these buildings to keep it from spreading like wildfire. So I, I really feared that we were in trouble and those fears unfortunately have been borne out. Right. And so in the facilities where you work and are involved, these facilities in the San Diego area, have any of them been affected by coronavirus? Well, so I'm going to knock on wood. My dogs might bark, but uh, <laughs> so far in, in the three facilities where I uh, do direct patient care, we have not had any active cases, and that's in coastal north San Diego County. Other parts of San Diego County have been hit harder, especially down uh, by the border uh, and out in, in our east county. But uh, for Mariner, we've got 20 facilities in California, and luckily over half of them have had, or at least currently have no active or suspected cases. But we have had a couple of facilities that have been hit fairly hard. And just this past weekend, we learned that a, a beloved staff member from one of our facilities had died from COVID. So we've had well over a dozen deaths among our uh, residents, and we're thinking that the death rate right now is uh, somewhere around 25% of residents who uh, are testing positive for COVID wind up dying from it. And that's so far, there may, be, there may be additional deaths. On the other hand, there's a fair number of residents in whom it's a complete surprise that they're positive because they've shown absolutely no symptoms, and, but you do a uh, nasopharyngeal swab and it comes back positive and you know, so just like in the younger population, there are a fair number of people who don't show symptoms and uh, seem to get over it uh, without any uh, without any big fuss. Yeah, that's definitely been um, 
one of those things that so many of us, I think, as health providers have found so kind of curious about coronavirus, this sort of spread in how serious it can be and how in some people there are practically no symptoms are very mild and other people get very seriously ill. And so it sounds like even in people who are much older and frailer, even though there's a higher chance of dying, it's still not clear to me like how many, what proportion of them get seriously ill, you know, in comparison to, I don't know, people who are 20 years younger, but it sounds like there are still a fair number of them who will have a mild course. Yeah, that's been our experience. And, you know, this has been such a moving target. I mean, every day there's something new to learn and it's, it's fascinating and it's it's a little scary, but I mean, my sense is that that if you are older and more frail, you know, and have other medical problems, especially pulmonary problems, you are more likely to be one of those people who um, gets sicker and has a bad outcome. And certainly, the people who wind up on ventilators are doing really poorly. Uh, very few of the uh, nursing home population uh, who has landed on a ventilator has been able to come off it. Well, so I know for people who are so worried about their older loved ones in nursing homes, they often want to know more about what happens when people in nursing homes actually catch coronavirus. So maybe you can tell us a little bit more of what you've learned. As uh, I know it sounds like there hasn't been that much of it in the facilities where you're providing direct patient care, but there have been in other Mariner facilities and, of course, in your role as part of this national organization for medical directors of long-term care facilities. You must be hearing a lot about this. So one of the things that, that I know I've thought about, you know, in terms of helping families better understand the risks if coronavirus comes to a nursing home where they have a loved one, is there is this question of, you know, will they get good enough care in the nursing home or would they be better off going to the hospital? So what for people who, who have more symptoms, what kind of care are they getting in, in most nursing homes and how does it compare to what they'd get in the hospital? Sure. And that's a big question. And I'm just going to preface my answer by saying that I'm biased because I think the hospital is a terrible place for anybody, just in general. And, and for a nursing home resident, especially if, for our long-term care residents, this is their home. This is where they're going to be staying for the long haul. And so if we can provide the necessary care where they are, why on earth would we subject them to the disruption and the, the chaos uh, and the, you know, the poking, prodding, restraints, you know, all that stuff that they do in hospitals, bless their hearts, um, while trying to save lives. So if there's any way to take care of people in the nursing home, then by all means, I, that's, that's my strong preference. Now, that's complicated by the fact that at least when this all started, many nursing homes were really woefully unprepared for this and really through no fault of their own. Uh, and nursing homes often are not staffed at extremely high levels. So the nursing assistants who do the bulk of the work, they're kind of hustling just to get their day-to-day -day work done. Once you start adding in, you know, having to don and doff PPE and, uh, you know, all that type of stuff, all the additional cleaning that's required, it makes things all the more complicated. And then to complicate it, we had uh, a significant lack of, of PPE because, uh, you know, back before this, pandemic, I mean, back in 2016, uh, under the Obama administration, a whole new set of nursing home regulations came out. And part of it uh, was that every facility had to designate a person as their infection preventionist. That would usually be a nurse that, that also had other duties, but who had taken additional education uh, in infectious disease. So, I mean, we were more prepared than we would have been if that had never happened. But before COVID, I mean, the PPE would be used once in a while, you know. Um, right. And by PPE, we're, of course, referring to personal protective equipment. So that would be the face masks, right? The gowns. Right. Gowns, gloves, you know, visors, uh, those types of things. And, and, and you know, booties. Uh, anyway, thanks for reminding me. If I use jargon, I'm, I'm happy to... Uh, tone that down. It's just, I hear PPE a lot, you know. Uh, oh, I think it's in the mainstream media, but I always like to make sure we're, we're clear. Yeah, we didn't have a lot of uh, use for PPE. You know, once in a while we might have a flu outbreak or uh, C. diff, which is a, a type of diarrhea that people get, uh, you know, so that for particular rooms or particular wings uh, for short term, uh, they might have to use more PPE, but mostly it was just gloves and the occasional mask, you know, regular medical mask not these uh, fancier N95 masks. 
uh, so when this first hit, I, I think if I remember thinking to myself, if I had a loved one in a nursing home and I had the resources, I would, I would run over there right now and grab them and bring them home, you know, and, um, you know, that's sort of an emotional thing because I just for worrying about what might happen to people today, I feel much less like that because I think, uh, we've really brought up the level of, of PPE and there's also a lot more testing available. When this first started, somebody would get sick and you'd have no idea, you know, you'd order a test and it could take eight, nine days to come back. And in the meantime, of course, you're treating them as if they, they have COVID, but that was just, that was insane. I mean, it was very, very uh, troubling and disruptive. And you see what happened in a lot of facilities uh, when this was first getting rolling is just that it, it ravaged these places. Some of the veterans, uh, just like wildfire. Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like, you know, the reason why coronavirus has been such a serious problem in nursing homes, and I think the estimate right now is that at least a third of the deaths have happened in nursing homes or long-term care facilities. In some states, it's up to half seems to be the, the estimate. But it, it sounds like, you know, even before coronavirus, often, you know, the, they didn't have a lot of staff for the number of people there and those those staffers were quite busy and we know they're relatively not well paid. And then we know some nursing homes have just a history of not doing great on infection control, even though it sounds like that Obama era regulation was meant to beef that up. And then once coronavirus hit, there was not enough personal protective equipment, there was not enough testing. It also came fairly quickly. So I think the time to just, you know, train everybody, right? Oh, absolutely. I, I think it, it was it was really like an ambush. And, um, I, you know, I I don't want to spend too much time uh, bashing our administration or other governmental agencies, but I, I have to say it's been disappointing, the lack of uh, sort of a single sort of incident command approach to this problem. Uh, you cannot imagine the amount of mixed messages that have been uh, sent out from various agencies and so on. And, I mean, just as an example, California, the Department of Public Health sent out a mandate, uh, I think at the beginning of April, saying if a hospital deems that a COVID patient is stable for discharge, a nursing facility may not refuse that person admission. So basically, the state was saying, uh, we don't care if you've got a, a facility that you've been doing a great job and you have had no cases yet. If the hospital says we want to send you a COVID patient, you cannot say no. I mean, it was such a terrible idea. Of course, they did, that's what they did in New York State. And you see how, how poorly that ended. I mean, there were thousands and thousands of deaths, many of which I think would have been preventable uh, because of that mandate. Well, fortunately, in California, some of our professional organizations, uh, like the California Association of Long-Term Care Medicine, or CalTCM, got involved. Uh, you know, we had sort of a media push, and I, the public was like, "What? That doesn't make sense at all. That's crazy. Why on earth would you do that?" And so, just a few days after putting that into effect, they they backed that down, uh, which, you know, we were all very thankful for. But that's just one example of the the sort of uh, you know, it's just been, it's been slow and I'm sympathetic to how difficult it is for a big bureaucracy to, uh, to make quick changes, but uh, that's what you need in a pandemic. And I think that's where, uh, you know, a real incident command uh, would have been helpful. Would have made a difference. Right. Well, so now that we're, now that we're a few, a few months in, I would love for you to talk a little bit more about what's happening now in the facilities that you're involved in when people have coronavirus. So we were talking about how in general for frail older adults, the hospital is often a perilous place. That's why often in geriatrics, we're advocates for you know only going if it's absolutely necessary <laughs> and it's likely that the person will benefit. And of course with coronavirus, there was the additional twist that older people can no longer have visitors and the staff have to come in wearing all these gowns and barriers, which could easily be alienating or frightening to an older person who's become forgetful. So definitely, definitely downsides. And of course, people are very worried about, you know, their loved one's uh, health if they're sick. So how are people now, frail older residents, being cared for if they get coronavirus and they seem to actually be symptomatic? Sure. Well, and first, maybe I can just say 
I mean, all of the nursing homes and, and to a lesser extent, assisted living um, have experienced a huge change in the way things are done, just, you know, whether they've had cases or not. Uh, because, because as you mentioned, there's a no visitor policy, there's mandatory screening and disinfection, and basically nobody that's, that's not considered essential to come into the building is allowed into the building. In fact, uh, some of the facilities around here aren't letting hospice nurses in, um, which, uh, you know, I have mixed feelings about that, right? Because uh, hospice nurses, uh, to me, I, I feel like they're essential. I mean, I'm a hospice medical director and I'm a little biased. So they're very strict on who gets to come in. And basically no visitors are allowed in except if the person is really on their deathbed. Unfortunate, but it, it's better to at least um, allow for that sort of a compassionate exception. And, and I think maybe in the next couple of months, they will start um, allowing some additional visitors into some of the facilities, depending on what's going on in the communities and, and that sort of thing. But, you know, and within the facilities, people are not allowed to have close contact. You know, there's no more sort of, they're not sitting around a table and playing bingo. Uh, and that's, that's really hard for some people. I mean, the 24 hours lasts a long time in a nursing home. And so, so that's, those are some of the big differences uh, as far as how things are done. And right, the masks and, and those types of things that I think a lot of people are getting used to that. But probably the most difficult thing is the lack of access to uh, family visitors who, you know, for many nursing home residents, that's the, the, the best thing that ever happens to them is when their family comes in. And uh, I've certainly had a number of patients who have suffered a significant decline and, you know, they've lost weight and they seem to be depressed and, and sort of, you know, just drawn into themselves because they're missing their family members and they're, some of them may not fully understand uh, why. Uh, thankfully, we've got, um, we've got virtual visits and we've got, you know, Zoom and Facebook and all those uh, Skype type yeah. of things. Well, I would love to talk more in a bit about how we can support our older people in long-term care, you know, under the current restrictions, but to just come back to like when they're actually sick, what kind of care are they able to get and how can sort of families think about that decision of the care in the facility compared to the hospital? Yeah. So I would say one thing nursing homes don't have, they don't have the special rooms with the special sort of um, suction uh, and that sort of protection and they don't have ventilators. Short of that, uh, I think, you know, basic nursing is pretty much the way it, it always has been. And they do have now more PPE and they've got very detailed protocols that I mean, you cannot imagine, or you probably can't imagine as far as, you know, doffing and donning the, the various garments. And uh, they've got facilities that have COVID patients, actually all facilities, have been mandated to set up a COVID wing if and when it hits. Uh, and for facilities that already have it, uh, they have physical barriers, you know, kind of like the sort of thing you might see on a construction site. They have different staff that are specifically designated to work with the COVID residents and uh, they don't commingle with, uh, with other staff that are taking care of the other residents. So I think it's, they're doing a good job. Uh, and I can't speak for every facility, but the state right now, they've basically called off all of their usual inspection processes and survey processes, and it's all about infection prevention. So uh, and they have been all over these facilities. I, I mean, they're making multiple visits a month. They're doing virtual visits. And so I think uh, if I had a family member in a facility, I would feel relatively confident that, uh, that appropriate measures are being taken. Right. And then for the COVID wings, just since when people are sick, they need, you know, they might need additional care or additional monitoring. Have facilities been able to increase their staff or their nurses to provide that care? Yeah, to a varying degree. But here's the other thing is that a lot of nursing homes, the thing about it is that currently a lot of nursing homes who are normally reliant on the hospital sending them people for, for skilled care, basically for rehab let's say after a hip fracture or after a stroke or heart attack or those kinds of things or, or elective surgeries, those have really gone down lately. So the nursing homes probably aren't happy about it because their census is lower, but it does free up staff to do, do these other tasks. So 
I haven't heard a lot about about facilities being unable to um, uh, fill it or be able to handle the additional uh, duties. But in cases where they have, there are other options. And a lot of times the county health department has resources. I know there are some places where hospitals have had to lay off regular uh, nursing staff. And those are the types of, of things that we're thinking about to fill it. For example, if a facility had a bunch of um, staff that were, that were sick with COVID and couldn't work and had to be off for two weeks. So those are some of the things that, uh, that we can do. And then there's also you know, the, the health core that's, that's available and also some federal, uh, you know, like National Guard and that sort of thing that, that, that can be called in in, in case of So they're emergency. often able to get staff. And then in terms of the care for an older person in a nursing home who is fairly symptomatic from coronavirus, maybe has low oxygen levels, most of the reports for physicians usually don't separate out the frail older people, right? So, uh, so I know in hospitals in general, they've been leaning towards not putting people on a ventilator as quickly, trying to turn them over, giving them extra oxygen. Are these interventions that nursing homes are able to offer their frail older residents? And are, are you seeing it make a difference or do we not yet know? Well, one thing that we're not using very much is nebulizers in, in patients that uh, have COVID because it can, it can aerosolize it. But for people who really need it, we, we can use it. Other types of inhalers we are using. Um, oxygen, of course, is available. These have that high flow oxygen. I guess that's another thing hospitals have that, uh, that we don't have in a nursing home. You know, then as far as not everybody wants aggressive treatment. And so and when I say aggressive, I mean aggressive life prolonging treatment. And so for some patients, uh, they have said, listen, I'm, I don't want to go to the hospital. I want you to do whatever you can do for me here. And, you know, make sure if I get sick that I'm, that my comfort needs are looked after. I don't want to be, you know, gasping for breath and, and that sort of thing. And that's where palliative care uh, comes in and, and having discussions with people ahead of time, you know, saying, hey, we hope that nobody gets COVID, but it's out there and let's talk about what might happen if you were to get it. And I certainly encourage all listeners to, to have that conversation, uh, you know, with their loved ones. A lot of people would be like, hey, I do not want to be on a ventilator. I've seen the statistics. Um, you know, if I just had a regular pneumonia or something, I wouldn't mind being on a ventilator for a couple of days, see if I get better. But with this thing, it's weeks, you know, I, and I just, I don't want to sign up for that. I don't want to put my family through it and I don't, I don't want to go through it. So those are important conversations. I certainly encourage everybody to you know, talk those yeah, well, I think that's why it's important to sort of talk about what we know so far about the likely outcomes, right? So because it sounds like for people of all ages, if they're sick enough to go on the ventilator, I don't know what you would say is the mortality rate for people overall. I know that often they're on the ventilator for often up to two weeks, right? So there's a lot of rehabilitation that needs to happen afterwards. The older, frailer you are, the harder that is. But I think for older adults, it sounds like, you know, the survival rate is maybe not even 30% on the ventilator. Is that what you'd say? I think it was only 3%. Uh, I mean, that was a, it wasn't fully complete. I think they still had some people who were still on a ventilator, but that was in the, in the elder population. Maybe it was, I think it was about, uh, I want to say 15%, give or take, in everybody that went on a ventilator. But as you mentioned, we've learned that you don't, you don't put people on a ventilator as quickly and that people with COVID seem to tolerate lower oxygen levels better than with some other uh, diseases. So we're still learning that. But I certainly, uh, I think it would be sort of a long shot for somebody with significant pulmonary disease who's uh, older to go on a ventilator and be able to come off it and get back to their baseline. And get back to where they were, yeah. Yeah, because it's requiring really high high pressures also and that can damage the lungs. You get, get that... Uh, you know, sort of respiratory distress syndrome that um, where there's permanent damage to the lungs. Well, I know, um, you know, we see it in the news every now and then there are these really inspiring stories of people who are, you know, over 100 years old recovering from coronavirus. But it sounds like, you know, none of them, as far as I know, had been on a ventilator. They were sick, but they sort of got better after about a week, right? I mean, some of them are sick for a couple of weeks. And uh, one of the other things that we can do in nursing homes that they've been doing is you can prone people, you know, you, if you put them on their stomach for whatever reason, that seems to uh, uh, help oxygenating the back of the lungs or 
uh, whatever it is, uh, that does seem to help. Okay. So that's something that, you know, families could ask about if their loved one is in the nursing home with coronavirus and is sick is to, you know, make sure they're getting proned. Is there anything else you would recommend to families if they have a loved one who's in a nursing home who gets coronavirus to sort of advocate for their loved one to get, you know, care that's more likely to help? First of all, I think the more that families can stay directly plugged in and, and, uh, you know, with eyes actually on their loved one, the better. And I, you know, I say that with a grain of salt because, you know, the facility nursing staff and, and activity staff and social services and whatnot, they're working hard. So, you know, if every single family says, hey, I want to have a, a FaceTime, you know, I want half an hour in the morning, half an hour in the evening, um, that might not work. But if it were my loved one in a hospital, that's probably what, in a nursing home, that's probably what I would be asking for because there's nothing like having your eyes on the person to see what, what they're looking like. Uh, so that's one thing, and certainly um, frequent contact, there's no substitute for that for a variety of reasons. And then I think it's important to uh, make sure that there are comfort medications available in case the person gets worse, because people can get worse fast. And, uh, you know, morphine is uh, super helpful for shortness of breath, but sometimes nursing staff are reluctant to give it. And so I, I think families need to be willing to advocate for their for their loved ones um, or to have an idea of what their loved one would want definitely. if they were quite sick and if it was to sort of you know switch to being comfortable it's to make sure the staff know that yeah there's a lot of fear about the you know, people staff members uh saying well i, I don't want to give morphine because it's going to cause respiratory depression you know it's going to hasten the person's death that's really not true and uh, if the person is declining and likely to die anyway I mean, all you're trying to do is make them more comfortable. You're not giving them a lethal dose of morphine. You're just giving them something to take the edge off that air hunger. Right. Yeah. And that's if they're in the minority who get so very sick from coronavirus that they're likely to die. Because again, we're seeing a lot of people, even in nursing homes, uh, recover. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd say a majority for sure. Okay. So you were, so I know initially part of what made coronavirus really hard in nursing homes was not enough personal protective equipment not enough testing availability, and just not having like processes in place, right, for coping with this. And now we're a few months in. So have these, do you think these issues are now resolved enough or are some facilities still struggling with not enough uh, testing or protective equipment? Um, I'd say it's a lot better. I know there are still pockets and places where there are are, um, issues with PPE and with testing. So California just put out, the Department of Public Health put out uh, testing regimen uh, just last Friday night, and that basically mandates that all staff have to be tested at least once a month, and all residents have to be tested. Um, and so there are some places where there may not be enough test kits, and that's all still being worked out, but it's much, much better than it was when this first started, and there was a huge shortage of test kits that the hospitals kind of controlled. So that's a good thing. And as to the equipment, uh, I think most facilities have uh, found a decent supply chain for it. It's just that the facilities who have a lot of cases really burn through it a lot faster. And so they have to calculate what they call their burn rate. And in some cases, like here in San Diego County, the county has been helpful in uh, helping facilities that are sort of overwhelmed and have been unable to get N95 masks and things like that they've stepped in and, and uh, been able to help. So that's what's happening around the state. And it sounds like a lot of it is still very local because the CDC is basically providing, you know, guidance at times, recommendations, but it's really more the states or the counties that are mandating what facilities have to do. I guess the, the federal government can make mandate some things for nursing homes. Like right now they're mandating reporting your coronavirus cases. Right. Right. They can mandate it. And they also put a recommendation for testing of all residents and staff uh, within two weeks. And that was about two weeks ago, I think. And it it hasn't happened. But yeah. And I think there's a lot that CMS or or the Centers for Medicaid and uh, Medicare Services could have done um, that they really haven't done. And uh, they're sort of leaving it to the states, which on the one hand, it makes sense because there's a very wide variability between how prevalent 
COVID is in different areas, and that that certainly should play into your decision. But again, I think some firm guidance or some or at least guidelines uh, would have been helpful, especially early on. But you're right; state uh, each state has a completely different uh, way of addressing this. And within California, we have the Department of Public Health uh, that sends out its all facilities letters and so on. But there's still quite a bit of variability among the counties um, as to, for example, when a nursing home can take an admission from the hospital uh, if they've had COVID cases. Some of them wanna have no new cases for 14 days. Um, others say, well, it depends on the facility. And, and so uh, there's not a lot of uniformity. It's, it's kind of the wild, wild west. So, and then we've been talking a lot about nursing homes, uh, which skilled nursing facilities is also what we call them when we're in the business. But, but there are other forms of long-term care, such as assisted living and other residential facilities. So can you talk briefly about the difference between the two and what we know about how coronavirus is affecting assisted living? Sure. Uh, there's no question that assisted living has also been a place where there have been some very uh, unfortunate and deadly outbreaks. Um, and they're similar to nursing homes in the sense that they, you know, it's communal living, it's congregate living. Um, usually people eat in the dining room together. Um, they are generally not medical. I guess that's one of the biggest differences is most assisted livings and what we call, uh, well, they're licensed as residential care facilities in California. And that includes both the big, uh, you know, the national chain sort of assisted living facilities and also the small, like six bed, what we might call a mom and pop uh, board and care, like a little group home. So those are all licensed the same way, but in general, they don't have nurses and they're, they're sort of social model, not medical model. So, so that's kind of a, a, a problem because people there have not already had training in, for example, how to use PPE or any of these other uh, infection precautions, but they've learned pretty rapidly and they were pretty quick to um, institute uh, the new sort of no visitor policies and those types of things. So honestly, if I had a loved one, um, I might find it preferable to have that loved one in a small, like six bed uh, residential care facility than a, than a nursing home or a big assisted living, just because there are less people coming and going. There's usually two staff members, you know, and they're there a lot. And, and uh, as opposed to a, a big facility where you might have a couple hundred staff members, you know, coming in and out and potentially bringing the virus into the building. Yeah. So for those people, because again, this coronavirus is likely to be with us for you know probably another year until we have an effective vaccine for people who families who are in a situation where they're they're considering you know a residential placement this might be a time to look at smaller facilities rather than larger ones right yeah and i mean i'm, I'm a little biased anyway i i'm a person i like home cooked food and uh, you know, i think more staff uh per resident is better so if you have two staffers and, and six residents that's a lot better than one certified nursing assistant with 15 residents in a, in a nursing home or something. So, but yeah, it's an individual choice and I would never, uh, some people really like the big assisted livings that, you know, they've got more formalized activities and that sort of thing. Right. Although a lot of the activities are, are currently on hold, but I, I think sometimes people don't realize that assisted living is, you know, technically a different type of residential facility and is licensed very differently, right? As you said, it's technically non-medical, even though we know from the research that people who go into assisted living often have a lot of chronic conditions. <laughs> yep, you said that very well. And you know, the, what surprises me, or I guess it really doesn't surprise me anymore, but it's slightly disappointing is that, you know, you send somebody to the hospital, they, the emergency room doctors have no idea. They just, they just assume, uh, you know, they say long-term care, and they have no idea of the nuances. There are actually very significant differences between a nursing home and a, and a six-bed uh, board and care facility. But I think sometimes families think that assisted living facilities have more regulation than they actually do, or more nursing and medical expertise than they actually do. And then we know that also there are quite a lot of people with memory problems in assisted living, right? Yes, that's true. And, and you're right, because uh, I think... And some of these uh, facilities, 
do have nurses on site. Some of them have 24-7 nurses, some of the larger, fancier, more expensive um, facilities. So that's a good thing to have a nurse on site. But uh, and, and I think sometimes they market it that way. But uh, I think that's a really important thing for your listeners to know is that uh, uh, there's a, a wide variability and certainly assisted living or residential care is way, way less regulated than nursing homes, which are regulated, they say, uh, you know, depending on who you ask, either the most regulated, even above the n- nuclear industry or just below the nuclear industry. And those new, new regulations from 2016 were like 700 pages. Uh, right. So for instance, for assisted living, I mean, are they required to report coronavirus cases to the state, to families, to residents? Because we've had these rules apply to nursing homes. Yeah, I, I, I believe the Department of Social Services, which governs, uh, it's a different agency from the Department of Public Health, but it governs these uh, residential facilities. I believe they have uh, now mandated that, uh, not 100%, but I, I think if you go on the website, because mm-hmm. I just I just saw that. And that would be for um, California. Right, right, that's just for California. Because I think uh, in general, there's not really federal regulation of assisted living. It's state-based. correct. Whereas right. for nursing yep. homes, there's both federal regulation and state regulation, right? That's right. And, and uh, so there's a very wide variability among states as far as uh, what can and can't be taken care of in, a, in an assisted living or residential setting. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's quite variable. But as you said very well, there's a lot of people, I mean, you don't wind up in assisted living because you're healthy, right? You're there because you need assistance. Uh, and I you did mention people with memory problems, and that's uh, certainly a real complicating factor with, the, with, this, um, with this pandemic because they're much less likely to be able to understand what's going on and why things are so different and why they're not seeing their family. Right, and they're potentially uh, more dependent on it too. So maybe we can now talk about something you you brought up earlier, which is just, you know, with most facilities banning visitors and restricting activities, uh, I've certainly had a lot of people in the Better Health While Aging community, you know, reach out expressing concern about the impact on their older loved ones' mental health, cognitive health, physical health. And a lot of people are anecdotally saying that they're, you know, seeing their older loved one decline. And I think you mentioned that you're seeing that in some of your facilities too. So given we have coronavirus for another year, how do we balance the need for safety from coronavirus with the well-being of uh, older adults? Gosh, I, I so wish I had a simple answer to that question. It's, it's really complicated. Um, but I will say that nursing facilities have done some creative things to help keep their residents engaged and uh, not like sort of completely giving up hope and obviously one of them is the virtual visits which um for most people it's i mean it's not the same as having a hug but it's it's a lot better than just a phone call if you can actually see somebody so that that's a big thing and then you know facilities they're doing uh doorway bingo and uh doorway uh concerts and things like that where there's still social distancing but people uh, the residents are able to interact with one another. And and I just want to make a shout out for the people who work in nursing homes because, you know, Leslie, when you see on TV or, or in the newspaper, it's always some horrible thing. It's some abuse. It was a nursing assistant that was pummeling some guy's face or, uh, you know, and that's not the people who work in nursing homes. God bless them. They are they are wonderful people. And right now they are really stepping it up. I see this every day. Uh, that they are kind of, at this point, they are the closest thing to family that uh, some residents have because they are there at the bedside, you know, giving that kind, compassionate touch, uh, you know, cleaning people up. And um, and so we're very fortunate to have those people. And, and uh, you know, they don't get paid a lot, like you said, and they are, um, I just, um, I'm in awe of that. The, the bad ones get the press attention, but I think you're right that most of them are very hardworking very dedicated yeah. and they've been put under, you know, really difficult work circumstances these past few months and most of them have stepped up. Yeah, let's just pray that when you and I, you know, God forbid if we ever need to go into a facility that there's enough uh, kind, wonderful people like the, like the CNAs we have now to go around uh, because that's, that's difficult. Um, but anyway, yeah, just as far as the, uh, I think that we are going to probably see 
um, facilities start to um, relax some of the visitor guidelines with more uh, testing available and with rapid testing, I think probably there will be some concessions on that. And I think people will be, um, will be super happy when that happens, even though it may pose a slight risk. But I have to say that a majority of my nursing home residents are really taking it pretty well. I think they're more resilient than sometimes maybe we give them credit for, even though they're, we consider them sort of frail and, and vulnerable. I'm, I'm just uh, in awe of the, the positive attitude that some of them, you know, and they, they understand it, you know, they understand the reason for it. They don't like it, but they, um, they're holding up okay. Right, right. Well, one of the things I've wondered is, you know, I mean, I think there's, there's this trade-off, right, between being as safe as possible from coronavirus and certain quality of life issues. And so, you know, one thing that I've wondered is, do you think some facilities might sort of divide themselves up where people could opt to be on one side where there are going to be more social activities and maybe a little more risk and the ones who, you know, the ones whose greatest priority is to <laughs> to have, you know, the smallest possible risk of coronavirus would be on another side where there was really, you know, much less opportunity to to mingle, no visitors and and all of that. Yeah, I, I think that's that's one of the options that's being considered. And I think it's a good one because, you know, each of us has a very different idea of what, what would constitute uh, an acceptable level of risk. And, uh, you know, I don't want to impose my attitudes on other people. So I think that would be a, a, a nifty way of doing it. And, and again, I think with more widespread and rapid testing available, that, that will make that uh, easier to... Um, to actually implement. Well, because when I think of them relaxing, you know, the no visitors, no family, I can see some people really wanting it. And that also that's, you know, unless you're really in a community where there's very little coronavirus going around in the community, that's going to, uh, you know, increase risk, right? Yeah. Well, and people going out on paths, right? I, I mean, that's so many people really, really miss that. Uh, you know, even if it's just being able to, whether it's going to the casino. Oh my God, I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> Let's uh, please keep these people out of the casinos for a while. But, but anyway, uh, but just, you know, going down to the Seven Eleven or whatever, or going to Walmart or something, uh, people really treasure that. If you're in long-term care and you're kind of shut up in a building all the time, those are, those little outings are a wonderful uh, break in the routine. And so, but then obviously if you go out, you, you could bring the virus back in. So I, I Idea. That's why I've sort of wondered if they'll end up kind of dividing into like, you know, you can't have like 10 gradations of risk, but you could probably have two to three cohorts, right? And then I was also wondering for those nursing homes that have had coronavirus sweep through where they've had lots of their residents and staff get exposed or even test positive, are they now moving on to relax the restrictions of it? The idea being that, you know, they've already been, been hit or what, what happens you know, is there any silver lining, I guess, <laughs> to having it come through? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I mean, since we really don't know for sure that you get uh, any kind of long-term immunity, I, I think we're, you know, we're cautiously optimistic about that. But I think that uh, facilities where they've had large numbers of residents um, already have it and things have, have sort of quieted down. In other words, it's already peaked and now you're on the down, downturns. I think there's a relative sigh of relief and especially because now all of the new policies are in place and, and uh, you know, all the safety measures and infection control precautions, and probably that much less likely, certainly the people who've already gotten it and survived, we're, much, we're less worried about them, even though we still take precautions. But I'm just kind of wondering, well, you know, will they resume meals together? Because the, uh, the life of, you know, lots of isolation seems, you know, seems to have a lot of downsides. Yeah, well, so far, I don't know of any places that are doing that, but it, it certainly, uh, you know, it makes some sense sort of epidemiologically and, and uh, that it probably wouldn't be a safety issue. Just like if, if you had a, you know, an employee who uh, was asymptomatic but tested positive, I mean, is there some reason you couldn't put that employee, let them just keep working and put them on the COVID only wing? But, but, to my knowledge, people are not doing that. So right now, if an employee tests positive but feels fine, they are they have to not work. Yeah, it's a 14-day quarantine. So what what do you see coming next over like the next two months? What are what are your facilities planning to sort out or or work on? 
Well, I, I think we're going to um, start considering uh, relaxing the, the no visitor policy, depending on how things are going in the community um, and how readily available testing is. Other than that, I, I, I mean, people are starting to go out for, you know, regular doctor visits for specialists or uh, for elective surgeries and things like that, which we had none of that for a couple months. Um, so those things are already starting to happen. You know, probably people bringing in outside food and that type of thing uh, will probably, those are some of the things we'll probably start seeing. And I think you said that the guidelines now in California are testing all staff once a month and, right. and all residents how often? I don't think it's, it's uh, specified, but I think uh, I, I actually don't remember, but it's probably also once a month. Also once a month. It might be it might be once every two weeks. There's a whole other, you know, these tests are not inexpensive, and so it's not clear who's going to bear the bear the brunt of that. Um, but uh, it's it's ridiculous. And if you look nationwide, I mean, you're talking probably you know close to a billion dollars or something. Yeah. Well, I think that's often the subtext. You know, when they, you know, I read these media stories about how the nursing homes didn't do this, didn't do that, didn't do that, and you know, some of the subtext is a question of like the money, right? Who is going yeah. to pay for it to to be done? Now, most of them are run by for profits. I think the statistic I saw recently is that eighty percent of them are for profit. Does that sound about right to you? I think it's about yeah, it's roughly three quarters or so. Yeah. So all these things that we would love to do for our frail older people who are there, they all cost money to implement, right? Well, they do. I mean, they cost money whether you're a nonprofit or a for profit, and. and yeah, that's tough. And here's something else along those lines, uh, maybe a little, not, not specifically what we're talking about, but the whole liability issue. I mean, nursing homes get sued constantly, and, and it's, it's uh, a huge line item in their budgets is their liability coverage. And some states have granted sort of an executive order or something that grants immunity for COVID-related causes of action or, or lawsuits, that kind of thing. California, Governor Newsom has not done that yet, although it's been requested. And these facilities are getting their their policy renewals and whatnot, and they're going up by, you know, 100% or even up to 200%, and they're excluding COVID. Mm. Uh, oh, my gosh. So, I, I mean, they actually represent sort of an existential threat to, uh, to many facilities. And uh, if they wind up going out of business because they can't, because they go bankrupt, we're going to be in trouble uh, because we need nursing homes. This is where indigent older people get taken care of. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody, nobody loves the idea of a nursing home. And at the same time, you know, we have them because there are people who need a fair amount of help with their activities of daily living and have a lot of medical need or are otherwise quite frail or vulnerable. And that was like the option to provide care, right? Absolutely. And I would certainly um, advise your listeners to never make your kids promise you that they'll never put you in a nursing home. I, I really believe that is the most toxic promise that I think drives some lawsuits because you see people, you know, their mom has a devastating stroke. She can't possibly be taken care of at home. I mean, you know, every people work and they have lives and uh, you know, she goes to the nursing home and then predictably she dies of her because of complications of her stroke a few months later. And that, that child spends the rest of her life's feeling guilty because she couldn't keep her promise to her mom to never put her in a nursing mm -hmm. home. So please don't do that. Right, people. right. That being said, I mean, there have been, and you, uh, you know, I think I didn't uh, mention it, but you've also been on the National Quality Forum, right, for, for geriatrics. And so you're very familiar with the, the quality issues around nursing home. I and mean, there are real quality flaws in many nursing homes, right? Oh, I, I mean, it depends on what you mean, quality flaws. I, you know, we've got a very adversarial inspection system where basically the state surveyors come in and it's like almost like a game of gotcha, you know, with the clipboard and, oh, here, you didn't do this and you didn't do that. And it would be so nice if it were a collaborative process. So it's, I think in California, the average facility on an average annual inspection gets maybe, I don't know, nine deficiencies or something like that. And you know, if you're a member of the public, you think, well, that's terrible. You know, nine areas where they were deficient, but some of them are really trivial. I mean, really kind of nonsensical. That being said, there are also facilities that have significant problems with quality of care and 
uh, and with staffing and how they support the staff, right? I feel like so much of the, you know, residents daily experience must come down to the staff. Yeah, I, well, I think a lot of it does. And, you know, the, the perennial complaints among nursing home residents are, well, they're two big ones. You probably know what they are. The first one is the food sucks. And the second one is, you know, I hit my call button and it took them, you know, seven hours to get in here. You know, when you're lying there having to go to the bathroom, uh, you hit your call button, you know, three minutes probably feels like 20 minutes, right? But yeah, um, I think there's no question that uh, things could be better in nursing homes in general, even though there's some wonderful, wonderful facilities. And I think, you know, wouldn't it be nice if this pandemic were sort of a stepping stone for us to to improve the overall quality of care and the way that the regulations are sort of applied you know it's it just seems like it's it's such a punitive thing and uh, you know you hear these consumer advocates just saying oh we need more punishment we need more discipline more fines and that hasn't worked right um i need to really uh improve the process and i, I would say one thing about nursing homes is um the the nursing home medical director is a very important person but not all facilities sort of treat the medical director that way and so I, I think that's one thing that would be nice. Uh, we just got a letter from from several uh, members of Congress asking CMS to put out a list of nursing home medical directors. And certainly if your listeners have somebody in a, in a nursing home, it's worth asking, who is your medical director? And you know, what is he doing for you, he or she doing for you? Because there are medical directors who just, you know, the nursing home basically wants them to just basically show up for the quality meeting sign the papers and then just shut up and go home and not tell them how to do things. And, and that's really unfortunate. Because in, in your vision, what should the medical director be doing? Well, the medical director should be proactive. The medical director should be overseeing all of the quality that, of the care that's being given in the building. They should be doing chart audits. And these are things that, I mean, it's, it's in the federal regs. It's just that it's not, it's not really followed. And you know, sadly, a lot of nursing homes will hire a so-called medical director who is a hospitalist who's just going to drive drive admissions to them and keep the beds full. And I, I mean, that just really disturbs me uh, because, I mean, there are these people that know nothing about nursing homes, right? right? And they they know nothing about the regulatory framework, and and so I, I really think it's important for people that are in that position to have an interest in, first of all, serving our geriatric population, and second, in knowing how nursing homes are different from a hospital. And, you know, uh, we don't just put everybody on antipsychotics. We don't restrain people. Right. Uh, right. Well, it sounds like this gets at a kind of longstanding tension in American healthcare, right? Which is that there's often yes. a tension between what is best clinically for the patients or the residents and you know and then the person who's in charge of the books and the finances and especially since so right. much of our health care and and also our long-term care is for profit whereas in many other countries it's run in a more nonprofit fashion that there's often you know attention there with Absolutely. the people I mean, running the yeah. books kind of prioritizing things that you know are economically more beneficial especially short term and then the, you know, either they get a figurehead clinician or they have a clinician who really wants to make it better and who's kind of, you know, butting heads with the, the business people. Yep. Yep. You, that was very well said. I couldn't have said that better myself. So maybe we just need to rethink the role of business in healthcare and in well, long-term care. You know, greed is a driver. And I mean, unfortunately, I mean, it's true of individual doctors. I mean, maybe that's callous a word to use, but I mean, of course, you know, when I had an office practice, you know, if I spent 45 minutes with a, a sick uh, elder and their family and discussing, you know, uh, the plans and, and uh, you know, advanced care planning and whether they might want CPR if they had a cardiac arrest. Um, and if, instead of that, if I had just gone over and gotten the liquid nitrogen gun and blasted a few um, precancerous lesions on their face, you know, I would have gotten paid like a lot more for that three minutes than I would for the 45 minutes. And so, yeah, I don't have a, I think if we had single payer, that would, that would help somewhat. And I, I really think, you know, long-term care, my other, on my wish list, since we're talking about it is only nursing home care is covered by Medicaid or, or Medi-Cal. 
for indigent people. So, you know, it's $8,000 a month, you know, it's $100,000 a year of our tax dollars that could easily be paid for that person to be living in a small mom and pop board and care for 3000 a month and getting the same assistance with the same, you know, three activities of daily living or whatever, and probably being a lot happier than being in a big institutional medical setting. But no, under our current system, it's not covered. Mm-hmm. So right, right. So it sounds like there there are things that could be improved in long term care, and maybe this coronavirus pandemic will help generate some movement and momentum that leads to lasting changes that make it better, uh, including maybe more smaller facilities. Because it sounds like there are a lot of advantages to smaller facilities. Yeah. Well, let's let's hope things get better. I I, I mean, obviously, there's going to be some some good that comes out of all this. Right, right. Okay. Well, Carl, thank you so much. You know, to wrap this up, I guess to sort of summarize. So for our listeners who are worried about an older loved one in a nursing home or another form of long term care, what do you think is most important for them to know or do, you know, right now, given where we're at with coronavirus? I would say, um, and I'm very very sympathetic to people who have a loved one in, in any kind of long-term care setting right now. I cannot imagine how difficult it is. I, I want you to know that uh, for the most part, uh, nursing homes are doing a good job now uh, and you know, to the best of their ability as far as preventing any new cases and containing the cases that they do have. And fortunately, you know, if your loved one has made it this far, I think uh, I'm hoping that the worst is behind us as far as, uh, you know, the lack of, of equipment and the inability to get testing and that sort of thing. And, and we're learning more every day. So, uh, but I do think it's going to be a long ride. It's not, it's not something that's just going to suddenly be over and a, a switch will be flicked and suddenly we're going to be back to the way things were. I, I think that's probably the most important thing is to, you know, be patient. Uh, We keep hearing it's going to be a marathon, not a sprint. You may already be exhausted at this early point in the marathon, but uh, things will get better. And um, I would just say, stay connected, stay connected any way you can. Um, As soon as it's considered safe to go make an in-person visit, do that. And in the meantime, uh, spend as much time uh, visiting on the phone and online with, uh, with virtual visits as you can. Okay. And then do you have any favorite websites or resources for listeners who want to continue to get good information on coronavirus and long-term care? Well, um, I would say the AMDA website is probably the best, which is, it's P-A-L-T-C.org. Yeah, I'll post a link to it. So American Medical... Well, it used to be that. Now it's now it's Society for Post-Acute and okay. Long-Term Medicine, but we still... We kept the acronym like guys. Okay, so American Medical Directors Association is now the Society for Post-Acute Care and Long-Term Care. Is that right? Yeah, Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. That's right. And you are president-elect. When do you take over as president? Uh, That will be next March. Next March. Okay. I I think also uh, the American Healthcare Association, ACA, has some good sites. And, And the CDC has a specific nursing home section. The California Department of Public Health also has a nursing home section, and um, there's also the California Department of Social Services has uh, a section on assisted living. Right. So get to know your state websites covering nursing homes and assisted living, since a lot of this is going to be state-driven as well. And a lot of people, their county website, I mean, San Diego County has a great website, and uh, they've actually been, the county has been helpful in some nursing home outbreaks and so on. So that's always the best place to check what's going on right in your neighborhood. And if you want to know uh, how many cases there are in facilities, the California Department of Public Health has that uh, listed. It's updated, I I think, a couple of times a week. Um, Unfortunately, it won't give you an exact number. If the number is less than 11, it'll just say less than 11. So you don't know whether it's 1, 10, or something in between, but it's not zero. And you may be surprised to see that it's still a majority of facilities in California have had zero or have zero active cases. Yeah, that's great. Amongst staff or or Great. Well, Carl, thank you again so much for joining me today and also for doing this work. I think, you know, often people who are older, frailer in facilities, you know, are, are often easily forgotten. And so I really appreciate clinicians like you who not only spend a lot of time working clinically there, but also doing this policy work and this leadership work to constantly try to make this better because as we were saying, no, nobody wants to go to a nursing home and we need to have safe places for older adults who need that level of care. And so thank you for your work in promoting those and making them better. 
Anyway, thanks to you for having me and for bringing light to it. And uh, yeah, this is a, these people are a precious, precious commodity, as I'm sure you and your listeners are well aware. And it was just so disturbing when this all started. And it just felt like, you know, there were these ideas that maybe this population was expendable. And uh, we need to do everything we can to show that, uh, no, they're not expendable. We want to prevent every single death we can possibly prevent and every, every case of COVID uh, in these settings. So thank you for having me. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes. And I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.